All across the globe, when humans experience crises, like war and conflict, hurricanes and droughts, and even pandemics, a large humanitarian architecture responds with food, water, shelter, health, and other basic services. This architecture consists of United Nations agencies, local and international non-governmental organizations, governments, and non-traditional actors, and was crafted in the 1940s after the Second World War. Humanitarian efforts were and still are dominated by donors and organizations based in the United States and Europe. However, these efforts are frequently targeted at low- and middle-income countries across Africa, Asia, and Latin America often without taking into account the perspectives and expertise of affected persons. This system replicates colonial structures and power dynamics. For example, 80% of humanitarian workers are national staff, people working in their own communities when disasters strike. However, the decision makers in these organizations are people from high-income countries in the West who lack contextual expertise. When global crises like the COVID-19 pandemic impact countries with recent colonial histories, we see these power dynamics play out with real life and death consequences. Local institutions are underfunded and overlooked, despite the fact that local responders are the ones on the front lines. Today, we will tackle the intersection of colonialism, COVID-19, and the need for greater support for localized responses, with an example from the city of Mogadishu in Somalia. Welcome to Conversations from the Leading Edge, a monthly radio show and podcast featuring interviews about extraordinary advances in the area of peace and conflict studies happening at or around Columbia University. Each month, we feature interviews with scientists and thought leaders who are conducting groundbreaking work aimed at managing conflict constructively and sustaining peace both locally and globally. This show is sponsored by AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And now for today's show. Hi, listeners. Welcome to Episode 2 of our series on colonialism and COVID-19. Thank you so much for joining us again. I'm Zehaira, and today I'm here with Lola Arewumi our partner in the production of this series and my co-host for today. Lola is a humanitarian policy and advocacy professional. And over the past five years, she's held positions across many organizations, NGOs, international organizations, and agencies within the UN and the US government. And Lola focuses on humanitarian crises and also on refugee protection. Lola, I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Zahara. I'm very excited to be here. It has been wonderful to partner with you on the development of the whole three-part series. And so let's jump right in. Can you tell us why our conversations on COVID-19 and colonialism must also include a discussion about the localization of humanitarian responses? Why do we have to extend this conversation to that topic? This is definitely a, a critical topic to talk about. So COVID-19 has really revealed this tension in the humanitarian system between international and local humanitarian action. For example, international organizations, they're robustly supported. They have access. They have influence to funding. When an emergency strikes, they know how to tap into that system. While local actors, you know, for many years now have complained and rightfully so, saying that they don't necessarily have that same access, funding, and influence in order to robustly support 
the action they're trying to take in their communities. COVID just further revealed how big this divide is. And again, to say this isn't new because uh, the World Humanitarian Summit took place in 2016, four years ago, and this need to shift resources to local and national actors was recognized through many different commitments, but most notable, a formal commitment that said by 2020, so this year, 25% of global humanitarian funding should be channeled as directly as possible to local and national responders. And we know from years of review, every year there's a, you know, people try to take stock and continue to fall short. But now with COVID-19 being a specific emergency, a specific disaster, we see that this commitment is definitely not being fulfilled. As of June, estimates that were taken from the UN's public humanitarian finance tracking tool revealed that less than 1%, 0.07% to be specific, was going to these local actors from the UN's Global Humanitarian Response Plan. What is that plan? That's the plan that governments, different private foundations, individuals, the money goes to this humanitarian response plan and the UN divvies it out. And still, this funding is not reaching local actors. And I think this shows the need for stronger localized responses and support for localized responses in order to really address these power structures and dismantle some of these, what I arguably will say are remnants of colonialism. Thank you so much, Lola, for highlighting this conflict and contradiction in the humanitarian sector and in today's COVID response. 1% is really abysmal, but also not surprising yeah. as we think about the way that this system has been structured since its formation. Um, and I'm so glad that we're tackling this today. And I just want to remind our listeners that our last episode, um, we discussed colonialism and how it impacted COVID, particularly in Zimbabwe and the Navajo Nation. If you haven't checked it out, please do so. But in today's episode, we're extending that conversation to what's needed to promote local control over humanitarian responses. This episode is entitled Colonialism and COVID-19, a global pandemic in need of a local response. Very excited that we'll be hearing from Dr. Hodan Ali. She's the director of the Durable Solutions Unit, a local government body that responds to humanitarian needs in Mogadishu, Somalia. She's also the co-founder of the Refuge Hamilton Center for Newcomer Health, in Ontario, Canada, but today she'll be focusing on her work as part of the DSU. Thank you, Hodan, for joining us today. We're so excited to have this conversation with you. Um, to start, we'd love to have you tell us about who you are, your background, and specifically your work as the director of the Durable Solutions Unit in Mogadishu. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm uh, pleased to be with you guys today. Thank you, Rola. Thank you, Zahira. Um, so, my name is Hodan Ali. I'm a nurse practitioner by training from Canada. I'm a Somali diaspora. Um, my family left Mogadishu in '89, uh, um, and we've, you know, lived in Canada from then till 2015. In 2015, I made the journey back home to bring my skill sets and and to help rebuild the country through different avenues. Now I'm uh, the director of the Durable Solutions Unit, which really is tasked to address internal displacement in the capital city of Somalia, Mogadishu. So just a kind of a quick brief background, as you know, Somalia has had a civil strife since uh, 1991, and over the last three decades, we've had that 
unrest that sort of destroyed our institutions. And obviously, uh, we've lost a lot of life and treasure and all of that. So in the past, you know, probably the last decade, the country has been on the right track of settling down again and, and finding lasting peace and rebuilding these vital institutions. Um, but in the midst of that, you know, the war and famine and all other, you know, natural disasters, there's been a lot of internal displacement that has happened. In addition to the external displacement that created refugees like my family and hundreds of thousands of refugees that live in neighboring countries. Specifically in Mogadishu now, we have nearly a million persons internally displaced um, that come from uh, neighboring regions because it is a safe haven for people. The international community is here, aid is here, the government is here. So whenever there's troubles, whether it's uh, man-made troubles or natural disasters, people tend to sort of um, migrate and income to Mogadishu and, and seek shelter and, and safety. And given that, you know, over the last three decades, our institutions have eroded, um, it created a vacuum for Somali uh, institutions and government to actually effectively respond to, to this growing need. So the unit was launched in 2019, and um, we've been working to strengthen the institution at the very basic level of, you know, creating policies and procedures and just, you know, the, 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 what makes departments and municipalities work because we were starting at ground zero. Literally not a single document existed to address a million people internally displaced. We've come far, but we have a long ways to go. Thank you so much um, for that wonderful description of this new institution, the Durable Solutions Unit. You know, our conversation has really been about colonialism, in COVID-19 and colonialism in response to or in relationship to the humanitarian sector. And it sounds like the DSU was established as a direct response to these kinds of dynamics and power imbalances in the aid sector. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about those power imbalances and then what you think the DSU is doing in order to address those. No, absolutely. So when I initially was tapped for the position, it was an advisory role to the mayor's office to start thinking about what we do with this, you know, growing uh, challenge. Um, and it quickly became apparent that really we're looking at, a, you know, not only just the sheer challenges of, of managing and addressing a million people not having basic life necessities, you're not even on the radar when it comes to planning and organizing and resor finding resources to, to do the job that really is a government service. And it was just myself at the time. Humanitarian is not my background. I mean, even though I'm um, like a nurse practitioner and all that, it, this is not an area of expertise for me. So I had to quickly educate myself. And really, I've learned very quickly that the system is set up for me not to be there. It is it's a legacy. It's a continuation of colonial era where you are just to show up, take the orders and the direction that you're given and if you can run with that, if not, that's okay. We will take care of it. I would show up to meetings and, you know, you're in Mogadishu, the capital city of Somalia. You're talking about Somali lives and to have almost zero representation from the institutions that are supposed to be, you know, representing the folks that you're helping, quote unquote, um, are not there. And initially, it was, you know, even difficult to get a seat at the table, let alone be heard. And it's about ownership of our lives, which didn't start with the Civil War. It started centuries before. Somalia was an Italian colony 
Yes, we've got our independence, but if you look at the last four or five decades, though, quote unquote, we have independence, I don't think that really has left the idea of being you know, remotely managed. Now then you have a country that um, has lost its vitality in terms of institutional capacity and, and, and leadership, and it has given that vacuum um, and that power completely to you know, the international community. I've been going to meetings where it's myself and 20, 30 others sitting on the other side. This is not the way we can even start to formulate any kind of understanding if it's just one person versus 20, 30, 40, plus the machinery that is the UN system and the international community and all the resources at their disposal without any being even planned to be shared with governments. Luckily, we were able to sort of um, formulate some plans and um, ideas in what we wanted to do. So we saw um, how we want to move forward, which is independently come up with our own plan and present it to the international community, but also the donors who finance uh, every activity that's done through uh, international partners, INGOs, or the UN agencies. And we were lucky to articulate that and, and say, listen, we can't operate watching you be the lead for everything. So in those dynamics, I had to quickly really understand that in the end, I had to put myself at the center of that power and say, listen, it's Mogadishu, it's Somalia. I'm Somali, I work for the government. And what we need to do is understand what our needs are and so either support or turn it away. Thank you so much, Hodan, for sharing um, about the Durable Solutions Unit, about the environment you're operating in. And honestly, it sounds like you guys are going to be playing a game-changing role now and in the future as, as you guys are still a new institution. But we'd like to shift the um, conversation now to how you're responding to the COVID-19 pandemic today. Um, since the early days of the pandemic, Africa has been projected to have you know, an apoc apocalyptic number of cases, um, you know, projections about very dire impacts due to the comparatively weaker health systems. However, that hasn't really been the case so far in terms of the data we've seen and the case numbers. Um, so can you share a little bit about why you think that is, as well as some of the measures you guys have taken at the DSU um, to prepare and respond to the pandemic in Somalia? So when, when the pandemic hit, um, I was tasked to lead um, the COVID response for the region. Um, and this was possible because the unit exists, right? Like, so we've developed that capacity to be able to create our own vision of how we want to respond, what the challenges are, what we need. So quickly, we developed um, a strategy for COVID response that ranges from, you know, um, economic sort of impact to health and, 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 and all the other uh, sectors that were being hit hard, right? And surprisingly, um, we were ahead of the plans that international partners were, you know, produced, you know, after, um, which goes to showing local efforts and local empowerment, genuine capacity building is far more effective. And then we were approached by the European Union, who primarily funds the unit for the last two years, and said, you know, this is coming. What do you have? Is there any strategy that you've got? We were able to send it within 48 hours, and they were able to announce some budget support and, and interventions for COVID. We have seen what, you know, death and destruction looks like because of a natural disaster. We've managed and we've come out and we're here today. So what we need to look at, yes, our systems may not be what uh, a hospital in New York City would look like, 
But nevertheless, there are things that we know how to do, which is cope with adverse events, right? And get ourselves in a point where we're not working from sort of a defeated perspective, but really mobilize um, our expertise, which is, you know, managing crises because we're in crisis all the time, but also understanding what are our strengths and being able to identify that and figuring out ways to reach our population. Because in the end, you know, even when you look at it from a medical public health perspective, the recommendations that were being made for COVID, again, were not sensitive to the needs of um, developing nations. So all the fancy recommendations of wash your hands, you know, wear a mask, um, social distance, hello, where are we at? You know, we're in Mordesho. People live in, in huts of made of plastic bags, right? 20 people live in that one uh, little hut. And sometimes they may not even have a meal to eat that day, let alone think about that a virus is going to come and catch you and kill you. So we really had to adapt in terms of how we respond, but also looking at the fact that luckily the population is young and resilient and use our approach to managing crisis rather than what's being scripted from abroad. And you see across the continent that the devastation hasn't been the same for various reasons, but I think it's probably to do because of the fact that the, the continent, because of its experience, has learned how to manage crisis. We had Ebola, we had other outbreaks, and I think we've learned and adapted much better than uh, the global north because of these experiences. And here, the same thing happened. Luckily, we were able to sort of mount our own strategy on how to cope and, and, and manage. So initially, the government did try to do the social distancing and don't leave the house and all of that. But I think we realized that early enough that we don't have the social protection to actually mandate that because you can't ask a woman with, you know, six starving children to stay at home who was going to go earn her $2 a day living, right? Like, so you had to look at cost benefit analysis of what, you know, you would do. But I think what we learned now is that we can't do it on our own. And what was surprising, and I think a good lesson for the country was the fact that we were in the driving seat when it comes to the, uh, the local response to COVID. The Ministry of Health, the regional health and the office of the prime minister designed and tailored the entire sort of response of, of, of COVID and success, right? We haven't had the number of deaths. Yes, there has been uh, a lot of loss of life, but in comparison to pop, uh, percentage of population and where we are as a nation, the, uh, the amount of death hasn't been as catastrophic as been presumed. And I think that is because the interventions are not top down no longer and that we're trying to move with interventions that we ourselves designed, because in the end of the day, I understand Mokdusho better than someone who is in the UN compound. So thanks so much, Hodan. I mean, the what you're describing, I think, are dynamics that, are, that as you've noted, exist all across the continent in relationship to these, these power relationships with international actors. Um, and you have described a little bit about the diversity of what Somalia is managing, whether it's locust infestations, flooding, drought, food insecurity, or other things. And I'm wondering how these humanitarian needs are weighed in response to COVID, but then more so, currently in this moment, how are international actors aligning with your unit's focus mm -hmm. in relationship to COVID? Like I said, you know, COVID to the average internally displaced or urban poor in Mogadishu, on a scale of one to 10, in terms of urgency, it might be a six, not top or, or, or the most pressing issue for them. But what we see now 
is all the resources and all the funding and all the discussions is around COVID and putting all the money into COVID-related activities, i.e. hand washing and face masks and all of that. Meanwhile, you have families who don't have water to drink, food to eat, a shelter over their head, the protection that they need. And then in the end of the day, we have enough money to buy people masks. Again, we're missing the point. So uh, in the next month or two, my goal is to shift the discussion back to solutions, which is what the unit is about. Take COVID and make that just one component of a larger solutions that we need. But look at the larger problem that we have. And that's not, I mean, everybody has now allocated every dollar to COVID uh, activity then what do we do? Because yes, let people wash their hands and do the hygiene practice and all that's required, but we still have a problem, which is a million people displaced in the city and I still need a solution, right? So I see that now to be the next challenge that I have is how do you not just sort of compartmentalize problems, but really look at it as a holistic sort of approach to, to addressing the basic needs of a population that is so overburdened and that really doesn't have the basic living standards of any human being, right? Our children, less than 20% of internally displaced children go to school. It's worse for girls. Somalia has the highest maternal mortality rates because of poor health and lack of access to timely care. I talked about employment. So these things for me, on top of COVID, are what I need to focus on and not just necessarily COVID. So that's where I see, I think, our differences exist. And again, it goes back to whose priorities and whose interests are being supported. It's not our interests and our priorities that drive how resources are allocated, but Again, the donor interest and what is going to keep that cycle of, of aid moving. It sounds as though the DSU, as is described in its name, you're looking for solutions that are sustainable beyond kind of the aid relationship. It would be great to hear from you just sort of something that you think DSU is putting forward that models how you respond to COVID, but also to these other kind of interdisciplinary issues. 2018, there was a, 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 some funds from the EU again. And initially, the way the programming was done really didn't leave much to be desired. After negotiating, we were able to sort of pull up resources to build 300 homes, the first social housing in Mogadishu since the collapse of the state. And that was because we were able to negotiate directly with a donor. So when the funds for COVID were also announced, um, the unit proposed itself what we thought the money should be used for. And it wasn't about just addressing this obviously present in, uh, danger that's COVID, but how do we build systems that, you know, the next round of COVID or the next round of uh, crises that we have in the city, how do we effectively respond to that? And, and looking at strengthening our health system, it's not just about COVID, but it's about more holistic approach to um, health provision and, and protecting the population health of the city. So investing in public health, sort of, again, creating the resources and the structures around public health, renovating and refurbishing MCH's maternal child health facilities, and really moving away from the MCH model, which is really an older model, and moving to primary health care model, where it's a bit more comprehensive. It's about disease prevention and health promotion focus rather than 
um, looking at illness alone. So we were able to sort of articulate that to the donor with good uh, response. They've accepted that. What it will do is pre-position the next round of COVID, which we know we're going to have in the next couple of months, to be able to better respond and to be better able to triage needs but also look at resourcing decongesting camps so that families have that space that they need. And it wasn't about, you know, spending all kinds of money on face masks and all of that. Those are great. But we also need to look at the uh, Maslow hierarchy of needs when I'm planning and in programming. And I'm always, you know, we're at that really bottom tier of, of that pyramid. When I program, I try to understand how I can strengthen that before I move to the next stage. And I always find that the programming and in how we're planning uh, has been missing that for, for the last little bit. So with COVID, um, we try to make it not just about COVID, but to also ensure that in the long term, i.e. the second round of COVID or any other um, public health challenges that we have, that the city is in a position creating a crisis response center, adding a few ambulances to to, to the roster of what we have right now, um, obviously doing the other items, right, like the health teaching and all of those things, but finding few activities that are uh, long-lasting and solution-oriented. And it's not just for that uh, particular project in any period. Thank you so much, Hodan. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about these power relations you mentioned earlier in decision-making, not only related to COVID, but also in many other areas. And if you could describe the main challenges in changing these dynamics. One of the common things that I hear is the allegations of well, we can't allow you to have part of the resources because you're going to misspend it. Um, and that is, you know, um, intentionally crippling uh, 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 the government to actually, you know, grow in the sense that, um, you know, if you have additional resources, you can, you can bring um, the support that you need. That's one hand. On the other hand, they spend a lot of resources trying to help you build your systems, i.e. the financial capacity for fiscal responsibilities and all of that. But yet, when you develop that, you're still not good enough to manage uh, resources. So we're not going to use the systems that we created for you because no one wants to let go of these resources. And it has nothing to do with mismanagement or anything like that. Everything's about control and power. What is the goal is what I always uh, come back at them, right? So is, is the goal to ensure you know, another 30 years of Somalia being dependent on external uh, uh, management. If that is the goal, obviously all the roadblocks will be in place to ensure that goal is realized. But if the intention and the goal is to get Somalia back on its feet so Somali governments and institutions can actually do their job, is then you make sure that everything that they need is at their disposal. I think the biggest challenge that I see in terms of how right now colonial uh, remnants and you know recolonization in this era continues is making sure that resources are channeled in a way that is conditional, conditional to ensure the status quo remains, and that those interests, which is lies in the global north, are realized, and that the global south continues to uh, limp. Um, if at all, if it can actually move and deliver those uh, results. 75% of our population are unemployed, right? And none 
but no focus right now is put on how do we ensure. All the focus is on uh, what cash program can we come up with to, you know, kind of keep you at bay so you're not really starving to death, right? Like how do you, how do we keep you alive? Not how do we thrive? Um, so so long as that sort of projection around where we need to be is in place. I don't see Somalia or all the other nations that depend on foreign aid uh, moving forward because at the end of the day, it's about just keeping you barely alive, preoccupied to just having that dollar or two dollars a day and not really looking at looking ahead and looking to your potential. As a final question, we want to go back to something you mentioned earlier, and that is that um, in this moment, in light of COVID-19, there's also this global movement for racial justice that's been spurred by the murder of George Floyd and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement in America now being recognized globally. And because of that, many um, people believe that the way that um, issue can be addressed in the aid sector is by finally recognizing that it needs to be decolonized and also accelerate localization efforts You know, in that same vein of the DSU, localizing efforts, um, giving power back to local actors and the people in their own communities. So are you hopeful that this will happen in Somalia, in the sector more broadly? And um, also, what are some of the things that need to be done right now and perhaps in recovery to make it a reality? Again, I think we need to be hopeful, but also we need to be realistic. So the reality on the ground is aid structures that are currently present is inherently beneficial to the global north. Significant amount of that money that is earmarked to go into the global south indirectly goes back to the global north through salaries and supports and all of these things. I don't see where the light at the end of the tunnel will be to um, rework it or re, uh, redesign it. I don't think redesigning it is is ever going to um, help us realize the potential of the global south. I think dismantling it and starting afresh and making it based on the needs and the interests of the global south. I think the days of saying, you know, we know what's best for you. We will tell you what it is that you need. And at the end of the day, it's not what you really need. It's about what I think you need because my national interests and my national priorities to make sure country X does this because it aligns with uh, strategic priorities of, you know, the five um, countries in top of the UN um, food chain, right? But, you know, sometimes when you think large at that level, it seems to get depressing. But if you go down and, and, and layer it and look at, for example, what we've been able to do at Durable Solutions Unit is to start small, start changing the, the ground game. And for us in the global south to actually start asking ourselves relevant questions around what it is and how we see our future um, and start creating our own destiny sort of and, and how do you actualize what a vibrant Africa looks like or what a vibrant uh, our global South looks like. We see the examples in Asian countries, right? That it can happen. You know, countries can rebuild back from violence or a civil strife or uh, natural disasters, right? There is no reason why um, the continent in particular cannot do that. But what it needs is strong leadership that says, okay, we've, we've been doing this for the past centuries it seems to be getting worse and not getting better. Where do we need to put a halt and how do we restart uh, afresh, right? Leadership that recognizes 
each country in Africa is able to really self-determine and provide its own um, capacity to feed and secure itself. But so long as we're not having those critical conversations within ourselves, I see that as probably one of the biggest challenges that we have to decolonize our minds first, then we can sort of think about how to decolonize the system. It's human nature to want to have the best interest for yourself and not always think about the interests of others. And I think the aid system is structurally based on the interests of the global north and not necessarily global south. Thank you so much, Horan. This has been a real beautiful conversation. Thank you for highlighting all the different ways that you and the DSU are are decolonizing both minds and structures and systems and thinking about how you respond to COVID, but how you have a more multi-sectoral response and push back on donors and make demands um, that are necessary to shifting the way things occur in your environment. We are so grateful to you for your time. Thank you. Thank you, Mahat Sanid. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Um, I think it's important that these sort of platforms are created across sectors, but given those on the ground who are really living the hustle and and sort of trying to push and change that narrative um, for their voices to be heard. 2020 has been challenging, but there's a lot of, it's been an exhausting year. And, but with all the challenges, there's something good that's coming out, which is having these discussions openly and people actually saying the things that need to be said without being punished or scrutinized Uh or scapegoated. Um, And I'm I'm seeing that and I'm, I'm happy about that. Wow, that was such a great conversation. I'm so glad we were able to have Hodan um, as a guest today. Yes, me too. And thank you, Lola, for arranging this, because I think being able to highlight a voice like Dr. Hodan's is special in this conversation around global health and decolonization. And two things sort of stood out to me as important in sort of next steps in the field of global health. And the first really goes to, I think, something both you and Dr. Hodan highlighted, which is this idea that, you know, the World Humanitarian Summit, um, you know, stated that 25% of money should go to local actors. And a lot of things that we do in global health are suggestions or like it's a recommendation for you to do the right thing around localization. And I think we're at the point in history in this field where it just needs to be a requirement. Donors say you can't have money if you if 25% of that money doesn't go to um, local actors, or quite frankly, if 50% of that money and that number should increase over time. And so I think we have to go from suggesting the right thing to do that's ethical and decolonial to requiring decolonial behavior by international actors, international donors, and others. And I think the second thing that sort of stood out to me that Hodan highlighted was kind of the courage of her team and of herself and of the Durable Solutions Unit. And when I say courage, I mean like that pushing back on this large global humanitarian structure when they're doing things you don't want them to do. So saying that you want the money to be spent on housing and you know other things related to being safe enough to protect yourself from COVID and not just gloves and masks, or pushing back and saying you want focus on some other issue that the international donor hasn't highlighted as a priority. And so I think that the the second comment I might make is around recipients, whether they're countries or people or organizations, being able to replicate the courage that Dr. Hodan highlighted and pushing back on this system, demanding that it aligns with the visions that nations and organizations have for themselves. 
And I would say maybe something she mentioned, like even rejecting the funds if they do not center your leadership, right? And being able to say like, I'm not playing this game unless it aligns with the way that we work. And I feel like that's the, that's like the philosophy and the vibe that she put forward in the conversation. And I hope that that, that a lot of people who are engaged in this sector take that away and decide like, this is a radical moment, push back on this system. It doesn't change unless it feels that level of of power coming from the base. I completely agree. And I think something that's important to highlight here is that because Dr. Hodan works for a government institution, even that affords some access to pushback as, yes, a local actor, but still affiliated with the government, right? So something that kept coming to my mind is that there's still local organizations, grassroots organizations that are even further, further marginalized. So I don't even have that seat at the table um, in these meetings with the UN that she's talking about, in these meetings with donors. And I think what you spoke to just now, you know, the idea that donors need to start also recognizing um, that that they have a role to play here. And I think that is what was supposed to come out of this um, funding commitment. I think everyone needs to realize um, their power and recognize the power they hold in the system in order to dismantle it. Um, properly. That's why that last question that I asked her about, you know, whether or not she's hopeful about this moment because of this inter intersection between COVID and this movement for racial justice that I think every sector, including the humanitarian sector, including the development sector, they're trying to understand how perhaps they themselves are replicating these power imbalances, white, white supremacy culture. There's been all of these amazing op-eds and commentaries by people. Yes. But at the same time, it's going to take leaders, decision makers to step back and say, you know, in this moment, I'm going to do something that may be seen as radical or against my interest as, as where I stand in the system. But it's for, with the recognition that the system itself has flaws and is colonized and is not allowing individuals to really hold power. And that shift of power is kind of this it's this trending movement, I guess you could say, even before um, Black Lives Matter being highlighted to say that local actors were saying, shift the power to us. You know, some local actors don't even like using the term localization because the conceptualization of localization came from Western, Western nations saying we need to localize. Well, for somebody in their community, they're just responding to a disaster that hits in their community. And I think it shouldn't be seen as radical to think that people in their own country want a stake and power and agency over their life. You know, I'm, I'm constantly thinking about how if the, the U.S. is going through a crisis, if, you know, hurricane hits in Houston, are we expecting someone from another country to come and tell us what to be doing to meet that disaster? So I think we really need to put ourselves and acknowledge the privilege that we have and even me recognizing the privilege that I have coming from the U.S. Like, yes, I am a Black woman, but there is still that privilege of being Western educated and from the U.S. and having worked in all of these organizations that do hold this power. So it is a really interesting moment. I think I am hopeful. I like to call, consider myself an optimist, but it's a big system that needs to be changed. Yes, indeed. And I love what you highlighted around sort of the concept of dismantling the system. So I don't think it's these small reform steps. I don't think it's like these small modifications to the way things are structured. I mean, it's 2020. These systems were crafted in the 40s and 50s. 
the dismantling, I think, is really required at this moment in time. And so I really appreciate being able to hear from Dr. Hodan, being able to partner with you, being able to partner with AC4 on this journey. Um, and to the listeners, I hope you'll join us for our third episode, which will tackle colonial narratives found in media about the pandemic in diverse settings across the globe. And we do that with the understanding that these colonial narratives influence reality. So we hope you've enjoyed episode one, episode two, and that you'll be ready to jump in with us on this third and final conversation. Thanks so much, Lola. Thank you, Zahara. It's been great. The Colonialism and COVID-19 series is brought to you by Conversations from the Leading Edge in partnership with Zahara Magnet and Lola Ademunmi. Conversations from the Leading Edge is sponsored by AC4, the Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict and Complexity at the Earth Institute, Columbia University. Follow AC4 on Instagram and Facebook at AC4 Colombia to get constant updates on issues around sustainability, peace, and conflict. Rachel Kirk is our communication supervisor. I am Mari Casalato, the producer of this podcast. The music for this show was written and composed by Kevin Johnston. That's all for today's show. Thank you for listening. <laughs>